The Secret of Spiritual Success for the Believer The Introduction Life is a series of tests and trials, Jesus said. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. In John, yet, how does a believer excel on those tests? How do you excel in life in general? I'm sure you want to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, when you arrive in heaven. How can you ensure that happens? The Holy Spirit is the secret, the key to spiritual success for every believer. God has set up the believer's walk in such a way that he himself takes the test for the believer. If the test maker takes the test for you, you can be sure you will end up with an A+. Believers who live this life without acknowledging and relying upon the Holy Spirit are like people who get out and push their own cars along the road of life rather than using the engine within the vehicle. The Holy Spirit powers the walk of the believer. The Holy Spirit tells you where to walk, how to walk, and when to walk. He is your guide and your power source for your walk with Christ. He is the one who can guarantee you will hear, Well done, my good and faithful servant. He draws you to Christ for salvation. And once you become a believer, he gives you everything you need to please God. He molds you into the image of Christ as you let him have his way. And it is the Holy Spirit who gives you the supernatural power to overcome situations that are too big for you to handle in the strength God has given you on loan. David said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables you to experience God. He makes God real in your life as a believer. All of this sounds wonderful, of course, but it's important to know this isn't just some academic head knowledge. It's real. I first experienced the unmistakable reality of the Holy Spirit around 1990 when I worked as a systems engineering and sales manager for a high-tech company. I was interviewing people for an open systems engineering position on a strikingly sunny day, made all the brighter because the whole side of the office building was glass and I had a south-facing window. At the scheduled time of my next interview, a young man walked in. He had an angular face and hair that was neither blonde nor brown, but somewhere in the middle and long enough to touch his collar. He was slim with a slightly protruding stomach that stood out on his otherwise thin frame. I would later find out this was a side effect of the medications he had to take. Let's call this young man Joe. I proceeded with the interview, and at the end of it, Joe said, You need to know I have a mental illness, and I have been unable to work for the past two years. I have to be honest and tell you that this totally blindsided me. So at this point of the interview, I thought, No way am I hiring you. This is over. The best case I saw was that I'd hire him and he would not have the ability to work for me. After all, what miracle could occur that would change things and make him suddenly able to work? The worst case I saw was him driving a car through the floor to ceiling windows and getting out of his vehicle with a machine gun. This wasn't some extreme thought on my part either, as IBMers had done this at other locations. IBM had begun laying people off, which was something they hadn't done in their entire history prior to this. The stress of losing their jobs, their reputation, and their livelihood it caused quite a few people to snap and take drastic action. All of this ran through my mind while staring at the window's now very vulnerable-looking glass wall. So I knew my answer for this job seeker would be a resounding no. But then something happened that changed my life. The Holy Spirit spoke to me. He said, hire him. I had never heard God speak before, didn't have a framework for it. I knew God had spoken to Abraham, Moses, and the prophets as well thousands of years ago. Yet I had no idea he still did that today through the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit's voice was so clear, I wondered who else was in the room with me and Joe. In the end, I did hire Joe 
because I recognized this request from the Spirit was made out of love for Joe. And it turned out that Joe became the best employee I'd ever had. He never missed a day of work, and I valued him as a member of our team. I spoke to him several years later, long after we'd finished working together, and he told me I'm doing pretty well for someone who was on the garbage pile. By this point in life, he had a wife and two children and had become a systems engineering manager himself. When I first met Joe, he was in a very bad spot. On the garbage pile, as he put it, it's tough if not impossible to get a job with a two-year gap on a resume for anyone, let alone someone who admits openly to having a mental illness. As I mentioned earlier at this time, Joe was searching for a job. IBM had just begun to lay people off. And some of these former employees were doing things like driving into buildings and shooting people. So Joe also had that going against him because it didn't take much for my mind to pull all this together and imagine a tragic scenario playing out. But God, through the Holy Spirit, taught me something that day. He taught me he is truly a God of love. He is a God who will break the laws of nature for his children. Though he runs the universe and holds all things together, he still has time for the Joes of the world, and he has time for you and me. He makes himself available to us through his Holy Spirit, who is with us during every second of our earthly walk as believers to guide us. That's what we'll explore together in this book. So let's get started. Who is the Holy Spirit? Brief one. We need to understand a few essential truths before moving forward in our look at the Holy Spirit. A lot of believers think of the Holy Spirit as a force or as an it. He is neither. So what do we know about the Holy Spirit from the Word of God? In the first chapter, I said he is the key to success for a believer. Let's first explore why the Holy Spirit is a he, as well as how we know that he is God. The Word is clear about the fact that the Holy Spirit is God. He is part of the Godhead, along with Jesus, the Son of God, and the Father. When Ananias and Sapphira lied about the money they were giving to the church, Peter asked, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. How much clearer could he have been in calling the Holy Spirit God? Furthermore, we'll see the Holy Spirit has all the attributes of God. He is omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, and eternal. He's omnipresent. The Holy Spirit is present everywhere in the universe at the same time, just as the other members of the Godhead are. In Psalms 139, David wrote, Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost part of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. He is omnipotent. When Mary asked Gabriel how she could have a child without ever having been with a man, the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. He's omniscient. On one occasion, the disciples asked Jesus how he would reveal himself to them, yet not to the world. He replied he would reveal himself through the Holy Spirit. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, the Father will send him in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have told you. In his first level letter to the church of Corinth, the apostle Paul spoke about the hidden wisdom the world didn't know. He said rulers didn't know it, the counselors didn't know it, but believers did know it by the Spirit. Now God has revealed these things to us by the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. He is eternal. When the writer of Hebrews shared with us one of the reasons why Jesus is better than the law, 
He said in references to the sacrifices, the blood of Jesus was better than the blood of bulls and goats, adding how much more will the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works to serve the living God. He is a person. You may have noticed I've referred to the Holy Spirit as he, him, and so on. That is because he is a person. He loves, he grieves, and he has a mind and a will. When Paul talked about the gifts of the Spirit, he told us the Holy Spirit distributes those gifts as he wills. But one and the same Spirit is inactive in all these, distributing to each person as he wills. When Paul wanted the believers in Corinth to join him in prayer for his rescue, for his gift to Jerusalem, and for his return to them, he wrote, Now I appeal to you, brothers, through our Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, to join with me in fervent prayers to God on my behalf. Similarly, when Paul spoke about living the new life as a believer, he commanded that the church shouldn't grieve the Spirit. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You were sealed by him for the day of redemption. You see, if we grieve the Holy Spirit, he will not work for us. Given he is the key to our success and receiving our whole heavenly rewards, we don't want to do that. Let's remember who the precious Holy Spirit is and give him all the honor and glory he deserves by following his lead. Brief two, what does the Holy Spirit do for the believer? We've taken a brief look at who the Holy Spirit is, and we're keeping in mind that he's the key, the secret to our spiritual success. Now let's dig into exactly what he does in our lives as believers. The first thing to keep in mind is that he is our power source. If you see life as a race, as the Apostle Paul presented more than once, then the Holy Spirit is the engine in our lives. Picture this another way. In the Star Wars movies, starships could move into hyperdrive and travel faster than light. In the same way, the Holy Spirit is our hyperdrive engine. He allows us to move between earth and heaven faster than the twinkling of an eye, allowing us to connect personally with God and providing us with the power to experience spiritual success every day of our lives. As our engine, the Holy Spirit gives us three types of power. First, the power to witness. Second, the power to achieve victory over sin. And third, the power to achieve victory in life. Power to witness. First, the Holy Spirit gives us the power to be witnesses of the life of Christ. When people want to see what living the Christian life is like, they should only have to look at us to see that. As mentioned in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit gives us gifts. More specifically, He determines where we will serve, what spiritual gifts we will have, and what ministry we will have. So when we carry out our roles as parents, employees, employers, children, wherever we have been placed, the Holy Spirit gives us the ability to be ambassadors for Christ, his representatives here on earth. We don't need what would Jesus do bracelets because we have Jesus living inside us through the Holy Spirit. Our Savior wants to live out his life through us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just before he ascended into heaven, Jesus told the disciples to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit to come. Now, he'd already breathed on them in John, and they had received the Holy Spirit when he did this. Yet before he left earth, Jesus told them to wait for the Holy Spirit. But didn't they already have the Holy Spirit? So why did they have to wait? The answer is they'd been sealed with the Holy Spirit, just as we are as believers. When a person believes in Christ, that person is sealed with the Holy Spirit. As the Apostle Paul shared in Ephesians 1.3 and 2 Corinthians 1 and 22. But the subsequent filling of the Holy Spirit takes a person further. So it was with the disciples. They needed the Spirit's power to be effective witnesses of Christ, 
no matter what might come their way. They needed the power to defy kings and rulers. They needed the power to stand up for Christ, even if it meant their death. And so do we. This then is why Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Wherever you live, you should be a witness of Christ in your neighborhood, in your city, in your state, in your country, and even to the ends of the earth. You should be a witness as a father or mother. You should be a witness on your job. You should be a witness in the local church where you attend. And in the body of Christ, the church at large, God's great community of believers all over the world. Everywhere you go and everything you do, you should be a witness. God has planted believers in every station in life, in every location, and at certain times to be witnesses so that people might come to him. You may know David as a famous Old Testament figure, a youth who killed the giant Goliath and later a king of Israel. But David was also the first person shown in God's word to have the Holy Spirit with him always. Other biblical characters had the Spirit of God come upon them for a period, such as Samson or King Saul. But from the time Samuel anointed David as king, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit was with him. So like us, David always had the Holy Spirit, and that gave him the power to be a witness for God. David's witness was so strong that even when he roamed the wilderness while fleeing from King Saul, Abigail said he fought the Lord's battles and that God would give him a lasting dynasty. Such was David's witness to that point, even before he had become king, because the Holy Spirit had empowered David in his work as a general and fighting man. As I already mentioned, he also successfully defeated Goliath, the nine and a half foot Philistine giant. He said that he fought against Goliath in the name of the Lord, and we know it was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Afterwards, the people of Israel praised him for killing his tens of thousands. We also learned that David together with just one of his mighty men, put to flight an entire Philistine army when the rest of the Israelites had fled. We are taught that David was more successful than all of the other generals and fighting men. Why? Because David had a secret weapon the others didn't have. He had the constant presence of the Holy Spirit, just as we believers have today. Now, power over sin is given by the Holy Spirit as well. David had faithfully served King Saul in every area. He killed giants for him, risked his life in several military battles, and even married Saul's daughter, Michael. His best friend was Saul's eldest son, Jonathan. David had done only good to and for Saul. Yet on two occasions, Saul heard a spirit of David with the intent of killing him. So David was finally forced to flee. He became a wandering vagabond for many years. During this time, everyone who was in distress, discontented, or in debt came to live with David along with their families. David therefore had the stress of not only hiding himself from Saul, but also hiding 600 men and their families, probably at least 2,000 men, women, and children. He had to feed them, protect them, organize them, and hide them. He even had to hide his own father and mother. At this time, David must have felt incredible pressure, and this lasted not just for a few months, but for several years. During this period, David had two chances to take Saul's life and to become king of Israel, just as Samuel had already spoken over him and anointed him for. Once, when Saul was in a cave relieving himself, David snuck up behind him and cut off a piece of his clothing. Another time, Saul and his guards lay sleeping. David and one of his men crept into Saul's camp. They removed a pitcher and Saul's spear. On both occasions, David's men urged him to kill Saul. Yet David refused to kill God's anointed. He knew he would become king in God's timing. 
and he didn't want to do anything that would offend God. No doubt David knew that when you sow the wind, you reap the whirlwind. David had the Holy Spirit with him to help him achieve victory over sin, and so do we. You also get power for living. David had an interesting background. He was the eighth and youngest son of Jesse. When Samuel came calling to anoint a king, Jesse thought so little of David, he didn't even call for him to come and stand before Samuel. David's father completely forgot about him. David was small and appears he didn't get a lot of mentoring or training from either his fathers or his older brothers. While his brothers were learning and growing as young men, while soldiers in Saul's army, David was out tending the sheep, which seemed to be his only responsibility. Yet God chose David to write more than half of Psalms, and Jesus quoted from Psalms more than any other book of the Bible. In fact, the whole New Testament quotes from Psalms more than any other book of the Bible. On top of all this, David's father wasn't wealthy or powerful. No one in his family had really done anything great. Yet David would serve as a military general. He'd also become a leader for the worst of the worst. Finally, he would serve as Israel's king. We know that David was more successful than any of Saul's other generals. We know he was the king God set as the standard. David could do all of these things successfully only because the Spirit of God was with him. You may not have the right connections. You may not have come from a noted family. You may not have a prestigious education. But if you have been filled with the Holy Spirit, you will be a success for God. Paul prayed for the believers in Ephesus that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory, that you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inward man. Paul also said to the church in Thessalonica, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. The only thing David had that the others did was the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit who made him able to successfully carry out his God-given missions. In the same way, the Holy Spirit empowers us for living out God's call in our lives every single day. Brief three, the Holy Spirit perfects us. The work of the Holy Spirit in our lives is powerful indeed, and it all begins with us, where he continually transforms us into more godly people. We therefore grow and mature in our faith as believers, whom the Father can use to change the world and advance his kingdom. The fruit of the Spirit. To make us effective witnesses of Christ, the Holy Spirit sculpts us into the image of Christ. Paul also wrote that the Holy Spirit develops the fruit of the Spirit inside us, and that if we walk in the Spirit, we won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Dr. Evans says that one way to think about this is to consider the battle of fat against muscle. In this analogy, we can think of fat as what the Bible calls our flesh, basically a sin factory. Conversely, the spirit is like muscle, giving us strength to do the will of God. The good news is the more we build muscle, the better job our body does fighting fat. Muscle burns more calories than fat, so increasing muscle leads to a cycle of positive reinforcement and adding muscle also makes it easier to gain even more muscle. It is the same way with the Spirit. The more we listen to His voice and act upon the desires He gives us, the stronger we become spiritually and the easier it is for us to follow Him in the future. We can think of this fruit creation process as working much like the muscle building process. In this way, the Spirit works to develop the characteristics of Jesus in us. Paul specifically lifts the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, the fifth chapter. Love, agape, joy, chara, peace, irene, patience, macrothumia, kindness, chrysotis, goodness, agothosuni, faith, pistis, gentleness, preutis, self-control, 
Egratia. Egratia. So, so let's take a look at how this fruit is grown and reflected in our lives. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul sought to tell us about a more excellent way of living, the way of love. We're not talking about the love you hear about from love songs. We're talking about agape love. In this chapter of the Bible, Paul told us this type of love is patient and kind. When the Holy Spirit makes us loving, we get patience and kindness as a bonus. Agape love is the supernatural love that allowed Jesus to call as a disciple, a man who he knew was going to betray him. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus even called Judas friend. Remember that we are all as sinful and guilty as Judas. We all betray Jesus by the way we live. But Jesus loved us so tremendously that he suffered and died for us. He was able to completely forgive us and love us as his best friend. It was like that with David. Remember, David had every reason to want to kill Saul. We saw that David was on the run because Saul wanted to kill him. Saul used the resources of Israel and deployed them against David. As we looked at earlier, he even tried to kill David with a spear from his own hands twice. Another time he sent soldiers to kill David when he thought David was sleeping. This tragic situation went on for what was likely more than a decade. Yet as we read about in the last chapter, David refused to kill Saul, even though he could have easily done so on two occasions. Even more, when Saul finally died in a battle with the Philistines, David wrote a song honoring him. This was patience, macrothumia, which literally means long-suffering. Put yourself in David's situation. Imagine what it would be like if the entire resources of a nation were focused on nothing but finding and killing you. When everything in us cries out for revenge and we choose to love instead, that is agape love. The Holy Spirit builds that in us. Joy. How could David possibly have experienced joy in his difficult situation? He had the might of a nation arrayed against him. He had few resources. He was constantly on the run and at the top of Israel's most wanted list. He had allies, but they were in no position to help him. His best friend Jonathan had a spear thrown at him by his own father when he dared to stick up for David. And yet David wrote many heartfelt psalms during the season of his life, and they give us some insight into his feelings. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for my soul trusts in you. And in the shadow of your wings, I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed me by. David kept his eyes on the Lord through it all, and the Holy Spirit can keep us the same in our everyday tests and trials. Remember, too, that God never changes. The Holy Spirit always exalts the Lord. He helped David keep his focus on the Lord. I will cry out to God most high, to God who performs all things for me. He shall send from heaven and save me. He reproaches the one who would swallow me up. Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. The Holy Spirit similarly develops peace in us by keeping our focus on Christ. The Lord promises to keep us in perfect peace if we will only keep our minds fixed on him. And as David wrote, my heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. What a witness. Despite his trials, David maintained a steady state of peace by focusing on God. Note also how the Holy Spirit put David in a spirit of praise as he stayed hyper-focused on the Lord. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. The 34th Psalm. Do you see how David kept himself small and made God big? This is our reality. And the Holy Spirit helps us see things as they really are. We are really, really small, but God is enormous. The more we magnify the Lord, the more we will worship God in spirit and in truth. 
and the more joy and peace we will have. Finally, David came to the place where he had an experience with God, even though he was on the run from Saul. He said, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Now David's joy was full. This humble and submitted man experienced the fullness of the spirit and the fullness of joy. No doubt David could say without reservation, the joy of the Lord is my strength. It is the same for you and me. If we want to have this kind of joy, we must keep our eyes on Jesus who never changes. And then we will experience the work of the Holy Spirit in us, just as David did. Now, he also gives us faith. And living by faith, the Greek word pistis, is one of the keys to a successful walk with Christ. We're told that anyone who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Since we can only come to God by faith, is it really a surprise we can only obtain success in God's eyes through faith? I've come to understand the word faith is very like our English word trust. As we walk with the Lord, following the nudges and pokes of the Holy Spirit, we develop a greater level of trust in God. He asks us to do harder and harder things in the natural after letting us see how he works the easier situations out. Through this process, the Holy Spirit builds our faith. Let's go back to David's life and see this at work. At one point, when David thought his situation couldn't get any worse, it did. After all those years on the run, David finally settled down after he acquired a town in Philistine territory, no less. King Achish of the Philistines gave this town to him. Early on during his time on the run, David had pretended to be crazy when meeting King Achish. For fear that the king would kill him, after the royal advisors told Achish that David was the one Israel sang about, the one who had killed Goliath and tens of thousands. Now, after quite a few years, David had come back and King Achish gave him a town of his own called Ziklag. From their new hometown, David and his men went on raids against the enemies of Israel. He killed everyone he encountered to ensure the word about where he'd raided wouldn't get back to King Achish. He also told the king he'd raided regions of Israel, and I'm sure he shared some of the plunder with Achish. Over time, then, David built up a good reputation with Achish. Later on, the Philistines decided to attack the Israelites, and Achish wanted David to be part of their army. Fortunately for David, the Philistine military commanders didn't want him because they feared he would turn against them and get back into Saul's good graces. So Achish had to send David back to Ziklag. David probably felt pretty good at that moment. After all, he hadn't wanted to attack Israel and his own people. But even as he headed back to Ziklag feeling good, he had no idea what trouble awaited him there. Unknowns to him, a group of Amalekite raiders had attacked and pillaged Ziklag. The Amalekites took all the women, the children, and all the belongings there. When David and his men arrived home and discovered this, they cried until they could cry no more. But it only got worse for David. Soon enough, David's men began talking about killing him because they felt so bitter about what had happened to them and their families. Remember, these were the bad apples, in debt, discontented, and distressed. But David had still taken them in and cared for them, their wives and their children. Now they were talking about stoning him to death. Wisely, David turned to the Lord for help and found strength in him. Then he asked God what he should do. Now notice this about David. He always sought the leading of God. He never thought he had things figured out on his own. He stayed humble. In one of the Psalms he composed, David said, Lord, my heart is not proud. My eyes are not howdy. I do not get involved with things too great or too difficult for me. In that stressful moment, David turned to God. And the Holy Spirit directed him. David asked specifically whether or not he should pursue the raiders. The Lord said he should and that he would succeed. With this leading from God, David went after him. Along the way, David and his men just happened to come across an Egyptian who had fallen ill by the roadside. As in, the Spirit led David right to the Egyptian. David and his men cared for the Egyptian and gave it food and drink, then asked him what had happened to him. 
It turned out a soldier in the Amalekite raiding party had used the Egyptian as a slave. When he'd gotten sick, the Amalekite soldier left him there to whatever might befall him. With the spirit at work within him, David asked the slave if he could lead them to the Amalekites. The Egyptian was all too happy to share with David and his men the exact location of the raiding party. As a result, David and his men knew exactly where to go. Soon enough, they fell upon the Amalekites and slaughtered them. They recovered everything they'd lost and more. The raiders had captured plunder from other cities as well, and all of that became the property of David and his men because David put his faith in the Lord and heeded the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul wrote that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. In this verse, the Word of God is the Greek rhema, a word spoken by the Holy Spirit rather than the logos, logos, our written word. David heard the Holy Spirit and his faith was built up. The Holy Spirit likewise builds our faith. As we walk with Christ and see what God does, the Holy Spirit takes us from one level of faith to a high level of faith. He also gives us boldness. As it says of the disciples in Acts, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. The Greek word here for boldness is parisius. It is a combination of two words, pass, which means all, and resus, which means resolve. Remember that Peter was part of this group of disciples in Acts. Peter denied Jesus three times immediately before the crucifixion, but once filled with the Spirit, he preached the word boldly. The cowardly Peter was transformed by the Holy Spirit into an effective witness for Christ. You may remember when Peter was arrested and beaten for preaching the word, then he was commanded not to speak about Jesus anymore. Through the Holy Spirit, Peter responded, We must obey God and not men. The same Peter who denied God before a serving girl now glorified him before the powerful Jewish Jewish council of the Sanhedrin. The Holy Spirit made him bold. Parisius is the same word Luke used to describe how Paul preached and taught the word of his end of his life while under house arrest in Rome. Paul taught freely and with confidence, boldly. If you have trouble being bold for Christ, if you're a hidden believer, you won't be once you are filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants to work in us so he can work through us. Many people want the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit, which we will look at next, but they don't want his transforming work in them. However, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to make us witnesses for Christ. He needs to work in us to do that. We see a warrior like David stay his hand when he has two chances to take care of his problems by killing his tormentor. We know something supernatural is at work. It is God, the Holy Spirit, who shapes us into the image of Christ. Brief four, gift giver. Some of the most sought after gifts by believers are the supernatural gifts. In this chapter, we will explore what the word speaks about spiritual gifts in three specific areas, service gifts, supernatural gifts, and ministry slash offices. However, our primary focus is always on positioning ourselves properly for God to have his way in us by the work of his Holy Spirit. Remember, the Holy Spirit is God and he lives in us. He can and will perform whatever supernatural act he needs to if we are in God's perfect will. The key is not to seek the gifts, but to be where God wants us to be, doing what he wants us to do. The gifts will take care of themselves from there. Because David is a great example of someone who was always where God wanted him to be and doing what God wanted him to do, we can again look at his life and see how God performed supernatural acts through him, except, of course, on a couple of occasions. God gave David supernatural wisdom throughout his life, even as a youth. Remember, David was a young man who never studied military tactics, had no family members or friends to teach him, yet he quickly became the most successful 
general in all of Israel. Before this, he'd only been a shepherd. That would have given him a great love for the sheep. Some experience of taking care of them would not have taught him how to lead soldiers and later an entire nation. As a shepherd, David would have not have been exposed to the complex political maneuvers of people until he finally arrived at Saul's court. And yet we see him using godly wisdom, even in his first major test as a fighter when he battled Goliath. Wisdom is the ability to make excellent decisions and to give people advice about what they should do. David was clearly blessed with supernatural wisdom, courtesy of the Holy Spirit. We just saw in the last chapter how David inquired of God in a very stressful situation. And God answered by way of the Holy Spirit. On two other occasions, David asked God for guidance about fighting the Philistines. And in both cases, he was instructed by the Lord to go ahead and attack. He did and routed the Philistines. On yet another occasion, David inquired again about attacking the Philistines, but this time the Lord told him to wait till he heard the sound of marching in the tops of the trees. Can you imagine how odd that might have sounded? Apparently not to David, though. He did exactly as told and again went out and routed the Philistines. I can just imagine David in each situation at the head of the army, directing his troops where he wanted them. I can see him wielding his own weapons with incredible skill. But victory was his because he received supernatural wisdom and direction from the Lord by way of the Holy Spirit. David sought the Lord first of all, and then the Spirit gave him every good gift needed to accomplish God's will in his life. So it must be in our own walk of faith. It may surprise some people to learn God not only called David to be a king in general, but he also called him to be a prophet. Therefore, David functioned in the ministry or office of a prophet. In Ephesians, Paul outlined five such offices, apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, and teacher. Some of these, of course, had already been given in the Old Testament. In David's role as prophet, the Holy Spirit enabled him to speak of a descendant to come many generations afterward, roughly a thousand years later, Jesus. But during David's own life, he actually described Jesus' crucifixion before crucifixion had even been invented. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, they say. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. Throughout the Old and New Testaments and all the way to our time, we see the Spirit working through men and women through these ministries to build God's kingdom. If you are seeking God and his will for your life, he may call you to serve in one of these roles. And if he does, continue to seek him with all your heart so you can follow the Spirit's lead. There are also service gifts. Um, which include the gifts of administration, the gifts of leadership, and many more, all of which are serving gifts you can find in Romans 12 and Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 12. These are to be used in serving others, following in Jesus' example as someone who did not come to be served, but to serve. Many consider these service gifts as gifts in operation in the life of every believer in some capacity, whether it's one specific gift or multiple gifts. The supernatural gifts are the one many people think about when they hear the phrase spiritual gifts. We can put these into three categories. Wisdom gifts, which include wisdom, the gift of wise advice, knowledge, supernatural understanding of a situation, discernment, ability to determine whether something is from the Lord or not. The speaking gifts, tongues, the ability to speak in a language one has not learned. Interpretation, ability to interpret this language. Prophecy, ability to hear and repeat what God is saying, including foretelling, Speaking of the future and foretelling, speak forth God's message. David displayed the gift of prophecy many times, as we just looked at. Then there are also miracle gifts. Faith, which is the ability to trust God 
even in the most daunting of circumstances. Example was when David trusted God, when he just he and his one mighty man faced the entire Philistine army. Healing, supernatural ability to cure diseases and ailments, miracles such as bringing the dead back to life. Peter did this with Dorcas. These are all truly incredible gifts. Here's what I'd like you to keep in mind. The Holy Spirit, the gift giver, is God. He decides what gifts we get, who gets them, and when they are active. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. Different kinds of working, but in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. Now to each, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. To one, there is given through the Spirit a message of wisdom. To another, a message of knowledge by means of the same Spirit. To another, faith. To another, gifts of healing. To another, miraculous power. To another, prophecy. To another, distinguishing between spirits. To another, speaking different kinds of tongues. Still another, the interpretation of tongues. All of these are the work of the one and same Spirit, and He distributes them to each one just as He determines. God remains God. The amazing thing is that God wants to work through us. The gifts are the way that God, the Holy Spirit, works through us to accomplish the task He wants done. But always remember that first, He wants to work in us. Brief 5. The Holy Spirit helps us pray. In Romans 8, Paul wrote, Likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Holy Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. It's clear from this passage the Holy Spirit helps us pray, but it's even deeper than that. Remember, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Paul also wrote, What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. Get this picture in your mind. When you pray, you utter a few words because you don't have God's viewpoint. You can't see what is coming. You can't see what is everywhere in the universe. You can't see the consequences of various decisions and actions you take. But the Holy Spirit can and does. After you utter your few words, the Holy Spirit was peered deep into your heart and who knows how to adjust your desires and your needs to God's will takes your prayer and converts it to what might amount to a 50-page contract. It aligns precisely with God's will. Jesus takes that contract and says, I'll sign it in blood. It's in my name. Then Jesus gives it to the Father. The Father says, do it, because it aligns with his will. When the Father speaks, it's done. It's therefore key that we understand that the Holy Spirit lives in us and wants to use us and pray with us. We speak of praying in the Spirit. We're talking about praying as the Spirit leads us in line with his will. We are letting him take the reins of our life and direct our prayers where he will. This then is only for the believer, as Jesus made clear in John. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. True prayer depends on the Holy Spirit to direct it. When you prayed in the Spirit, you know your prayers have been heard. I encourage you, along with Paul, to pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request. Prayer helps us grow close to God. We speak of walking with God, we're talking about prayer. We're talking about knowing what God desires and walking where He would have us walk. It's the Holy Spirit who helps us to grow close to the heart of God. As Dr. Tony Evans said in his book, Theology You Can Count On, the groaning Paul is talking about in Romans is two-way groaning. The Spirit groans for us, and we groan as the Spirit sculpts us into the people God would have us be. It causes us pain as God chips away at the selfishness and malice in our hearts and changes us into loving, good people. The Holy Spirit's grown and we grow closer to God. 
Deep talks to deep. The Holy Spirit who knows Father God's heart and soul talks to our spirit. Through this process, we come to know our God more deeply and to love him more fully. As this happens, we find our hearts growing more like his heart. And that is a great place to be as believers. Brief six, our personal guide for walking with God. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit, Paul wrote in Galatians, the fifth chapter. The Bible also talks about our walk as followers of Christ. Finally, the early believers called the Christian life the way. All of these speak to the idea of a journey, keeping in step with the Spirit, our walk with God, and being part of the way. What this means for our exploration of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives is that all believers should be following the Spirit wherever He leads us. This is the walk of faith, and our guide for that walk is the Holy Spirit. Each of us has a unique path to walk, and the Holy Spirit, God, acts as our personal guide. The Holy Spirit knows the way perfectly. He knows what our walk means to the rest of the church. He knows us how to lead us into the good works God created beforehand for us. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus, so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago, Paul wrote to the Ephesians. What's interesting is that some of these good works can be accomplished only supernaturally. It takes a power greater than the power we call our own strength. At certain points in our lives, God has arranged circumstances so that we cannot do what he asked for without his divine intervention. Sometimes that requires him, through the Holy Spirit, to work through us and perform supernatural acts, like the gifts we talked about earlier. The Holy Spirit does this when we are where we're supposed to be, doing what we should be doing with the right heart. Paul told believers to walk by the Spirit and said they will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Remember the battle between the flesh and the Spirit we looked at earlier? It really exists. Furthermore, when we choose to follow the lead of the Holy Spirit, we win. We are victorious over sin, and we receive the opportunities to do the good works God prepared for us long ago. We can also think of this walk as a race. Paul called it a race more than once in his epistles to believers. He said it to the Corinthians, the Galatians, and um, in 1 Timothy He declared that he had finished the race. As with Paul in his own race, God has set up our journey through this life so that it is a race just for you individually. It will cause you to grow in the way God wants you to grow and develop. It will yield the rewards God has for you, and you will do your part exactly as God would have it if you follow the Holy Spirit each step of the way. When you let the Holy Spirit guide you and power your walk, you get a hyperdrive engine. You can complete your race in winning time. However, if you try to complete your race in your so-called own strength, pushing your own car without relying on the Spirit, you will end up with few rewards and complete few of the assignments God had for you. The key then to a victorious walk is to be led by the Spirit. Looking at Enoch as an example, Enoch lived 365 years, and the Word tells us he walked with God for much of that time. We also know that God gave him revelation about the very end of time, although he had been born not long after Adam. Finally, we know it is the Holy Spirit who gives anyone such revelation. He tells us things to come. Therefore, we know that Enoch received his revelation by the Holy Spirit and walked with God by the power of the Spirit. In fact, Enoch walked with God so closely, God decided to take him with him to heaven while he was still alive. Enoch then was the first person to be raptured, which means he was caught up to heaven while alive. That's the way we should all want to walk with God, and we can by the power of the Holy Spirit. Knowing we are children of God, the word is clear that the Spirit lets us know we are God's children. For as many as led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. 
And the Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. On top of that, following the Spirit's leading demonstrates to others we are true children of God. Jesus told us the world doesn't know the things of his Spirit. The world is clueless about such things because it can't understand them. Only believers can understand what the Holy Spirit is doing and then follow him as God's children. Jesus also said the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. At the end of our lives, we will look like Jesus, and we know that Jesus is the way and the truth. It's the Holy Spirit who will get us there. So we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus was filled with the Spirit beyond measure. We need to be too, and we need to follow his leading in our lives. Let's look next at how the Holy Spirit leads us. Brief 7. How the Holy Spirit leads us. Thanks to the Word of God, we know the Holy Spirit can lead us in many different ways. He can open and close doors. Let's start with that. I'll place the key of the house of David on his shoulder. What he opens, no one can close. What he closes, no one can open. It says in the book of Isaiah, And write to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, the holy one, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will close, and closes and no one opens. Revelation, John tells us. Let me give you an example of how this worked. I worked for a company that was in a very dark place from a spiritual standpoint. Very difficult environment. More than 90% of the 170,000 people there were non-believers. I realized I'd been sent there to be light, and God sent me there by opening the doors wide. When I'd been there seven years, I got the sense it was time for me to depart soon. A number of potential job opportunities began to come my way. Four of them came on the same day. Over the course of the next three months, those opportunities winnowed down to one. And that was the job offer I took. Interestingly, all the challenges that I had to wrestle with on the job I was leaving would be areas of personal joy and benefit in the new company. Looking back, I can see clearly the Spirit leading and guiding me by closing one door, opening several others, and then closing all of them but the one He wanted me to walk through. He also speaks to us. We've talked about how the Spirit spoke to David about Ziklag and how He spoke to him about his other battles. In the New Testament, Jesus said, His sheep hear His voice, and they will not follow another's voice. The Holy Spirit still guides us this way. In chapter 1, I shared how the Holy Spirit led me to hire a young man who was mentally ill, who'd been unemployed for two years and how well that worked out. I also had the Holy Spirit speak to me on another occasion. I was blessed to get the chance to attend the Stanford MBA program. Halfway through the program, while taking a summer internship at a company in Dallas, I came home relatively early one day, somewhere between 6 and 7 p.m. I expected to hear our young son, Jonathan, running through the house to meet me. But I heard nothing. I searched the house looking for him. I went upstairs but couldn't find him anywhere. Then I heard what sounded like snoring from the master bedroom. I went in there and found my wife Shirley on the bed, unconscious, with blood coming from her mouth and nose. Shirley was seven months pregnant at the time. When she wouldn't respond, I called 911, and they soon rushed her to the hospital. On my way there, I stopped and picked Jonathan up at the daycare center where he'd been left long past the time my wife usually picked him up. Hospital staff performed emergency surgery on Shirley and delivered our new son a couple of months early so that she would be able to recover. I can remember very well sitting in a little waiting room with a couple of plastic chairs, a few magazines, and no one else there until past midnight, together with our four-year-old. At that point, a nurse came in and asked me how I was doing. I remember telling her I was feeling fine, but my right hand was shaking uncontrollably, though. Shirley stayed in the coma for three days. Then she came, too. She asked where the baby was and said she wanted to see him. He couldn't be moved, though, because he, too, was doing poorly and was in the neonatal intensive care unit. 
I thought everything was going to be okay. We would figure out something and financially and I'll go back to Stanford for me to complete my second year of school. Later that night, however, around 2 o'clock a.m., my wife went to be with the Lord. At the same time my wife passed from this life, our newborn son took a turn for the better. They were able to bring him up and place him in my wife's arms, even though she'd already gone to glory. They were keeping the body warm with machines, but her spirit had already left. Our baby Jared weighed three pounds. He was so small, he literally fit in the shoebox. He had many issues with his health. When I eventually took him to our pediatrician, she told me he had a heart problem. Not long after this, when I went to the mailbox one day, I got a letter from the IRS informing me that we were being audited. They were, of course, unaware that my wife had gone on to glory. Thinking of the future, I decided my mother-in-law would be the first person to return to Stanford with me to help me raise my sons. She'd managed to raise seven of her children, mostly on her own, while pursuing a nursing degree. However, as all of this was unfolding, she fell asleep at the wheel while coming back from the night shift and almost died. She lost the use of her leg for many years. After Shirley passed away, our our four-year-old Jonathan was grieving terribly. He was a very astute young man, and I had to sit down and tell him his mother was dead. He really understood. After a few minutes, he looked at me with tears in his eyes and said, What will happen to me if something happens to you? Every day for the first year or so, I would have to get up early to hold him because he would cry for the first hour of every day. Personally, I felt like I'd been cut in half and I was bleeding all over the place. Problem was no one could see it outwardly. Yet inwardly, I was in indescribable pain and it didn't dissipate like other losses I'd experienced, but instead lasted for years. In fact, my blood pressure, which had always been low normal, increased by 30 points. You see, my wife was a person with an exceptional heart. She quit her job as an IBM systems engineer to teach kindergarten kids on the south side of Dallas. We'd worked together at IBM for many years. We grew up in the same neighborhood. We even went to the same elementary school, and we just fit so well together. She made up for my weak spots. She was an extrovert and talked to my family more than I did. So I was heartbroken. My four-year-old was also heartbroken, and my newborn son had many physical issues. I had plenty of financial issues as well since my wife had only accidental death benefits. The hospital bill was six figures. Top it off, the IRS was now going to audit us. With all of this going on, God and I had a talk. I knew he wanted me to go back to Stanford, but I told him, I can't do it. The studies were quite rigorous. In addition to handling all the previously mentioned problems, I'd need to complete 48 credit hours of coursework over the next year. It's almost the equivalent of two typical years at most schools, so yes, I told him I can't do it. The Holy Spirit's response took me completely by surprise. God, good, because I can, the Holy Spirit said. I'm pleased to say he did. He healed my son's heart condition. He also stretched time for me. I found out I could get done in an hour what had previously taken me four hours. The school gave me a nice loan, which I paid off in seven years. The IRS decided to call things even and would have owed me money, if not for the fact that my tax preparer hadn't checked the box. My sister took a leave of absence and took care of my kids, though it took her longer than expected to come because she burned her eye and her daughter totaled her car. The Lord has brought us through the Stanford MBA program just as he said he would. I was able to graduate on time and with high marks. This was purely the work of the Holy Spirit. He spoke again when it was time for me to leave Stanford, the firm I'd interned with in Dallas during the summer, the premier strategy consulting firm in the world, offered me a job when I graduated. This was a place where if you could stay for seven, eight years and get to the level of partner, you'd earn a salary of a million dollars annually. That was the plan I'd had in mind for some time. We'd figured Shirley would stay at home and care for our children using her background as a kindergarten teacher, while I would work the 90 to 100 hour weeks needed to drive the financial engine. 
Now, I had the chance to work the dream job. Plus, I already had a house in Dallas. So you can imagine my surprise when, while I was in prayer, the Holy Spirit told me to go to Oklahoma City. I said, may I remind you I have a job offer and a house in Dallas, either of which I have in Oklahoma City. I felt God must have forgotten something because companies in Oklahoma City were not begging for the skills a Stanford MBA brought. So I asked the Lord, why Oklahoma City? The Holy Spirit responded, because that's where your children will get the love they need. So we moved to Oklahoma City with no job and no house. Eventually, the Lord allowed me to go to work for IBM, and I was able to work from home. I'd never been able to do that before. This was truly a godsend given our situation. In Oklahoma, we lived about five miles from my sister and brother-in-law's house, so it was easy to take the boys there when I had to travel out of town. My sister's become my youngest son, de facto mother, as she was the only person he ever knew in that role. She and my brother-in-law were like angels with the love they showed us. We sacrificed heavily on the financial side, but gained on the love side, and our ability to be close to my sister and brother-in-law and close to each other. Even the darkest moments of my life, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and pulled me through. I saw firsthand the same closeness and relationship God had with people in the Bible is still available for us today. No matter how overwhelming life becomes, it was the voice of the Holy Spirit that held me steady and gave me the strength to keep going. Paul encouraged believers to let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. The Holy Spirit gives us the peace of Christ. The Greek word for rule here is barbureto. It means to act as an umpire, to arbitrate, to make the call. When God leads you through the Holy Spirit, you will experience a deep sense of peace. He may also arrange circumstances. God will often coordinate what I have come to call God incidences. This is when events and people come together to make something happen for you. God pulls together and arranges all the pieces so they come together exactly right for you. With the oldest of my two sons, Jonathan, I was trying to decide what to do about school for him since he was going to graduate high school at 15. My plan was to move to Norman and let him attend the University of Oklahoma. But this was a matter for prayer. So I got down on my knees. The Holy Spirit told me, go to Denton. Now, Denton is in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Understand that I had a business in Oklahoma City, and my primary client was located in an Oklahoma City suburb. Moving to Denton wouldn't be an easy thing. It came with a lot of risk. However, when you are clear on what God wants you to do, you should move as rapidly as possible to do what he has asked. Therefore, I sold the house in Oklahoma City and moved. Denton is the name of both the city and county in Texas, with the city serving as the county seat. I thought God was leading me to Denton County in general, so we got a house in Flower Mound. However, I couldn't find any peace there, so I decided to put my house up for sale and look for a home in the city of Denton. I eventually found a house I liked, but it was owned by the bank, and the real estate agent said it would be over a year before it would be ready. In the meantime, I was trying to sell my current house without much luck. It's hard to try to sell a house when you're homeschooling kids and you work from home. I finally decided to take my house off the market. Just at that time, I noticed an alert had come in on the house I wanted to buy. It had just become available. It was interesting news, but of no consequence to me, as I had decided to quit trying to sell my house. I called my agent, intending to let him know I wanted to take my house off the market. When I answered, when I called him and he answered, he asked me if I was calling about the voicemail he had left me. I told him I hadn't heard the voicemail and asked him what the message was. He told me we had an offer on the house. Really? For how much, I asked. It was a full price offer in the midst of the housing recession of 2008 and 9, It was a full price offer. So on exactly the same day, my house sold for full price. House wasn't supposed to become available for months, became available. Circumstances were confirming what the Holy Spirit had already told me. We saw a similar situation in the life of David back in chapter 4. Remember, 
David and his men just happened to find an Egyptian man who was able to tell them exactly where they could find the Amalekite razor they were searching for. We know this was an accidental or coincidence. Our sovereign God arranged the circumstances to aid David, just as he does in our own lives, by way of God incidences. He may also use visions and dreams. God sometimes directed Paul through visions. Once Paul saw a man saying to him, come over to Macedonia and helping us. This was clearly the Holy Spirit guiding him as proven by what soon took place. Paul went to Macedonia as directed. Once he arrived, he met a woman named Lydia who was spiritually hungry. She became Paul's first European convert. She allowed her home to be the first meeting place for the church in Philippi. God also communicated with Peter through visions. In Acts 10, after he became leader in the early church, Peter had a vision of a sheep with all sorts of animals on it, including unclean animals. He was told to kill and eat. Peter replied he'd never eaten anything unclean. In reply, God the Holy Spirit told him not to call unclean what God had made clean. The Spirit showed Peter the vision three times to get his point across. At the same time, the Holy Spirit was carrying on a conversation with a man named Cornelius, a Roman centurion whose gifts and prayers had come up before the Lord. The Spirit told Cornelius to send men to fetch the Apostle Peter. We soon discovered God arranged this meeting to show the gospel and the gift of the Holy Spirit were for both Gentiles and Jews. So at the command of the Holy Spirit, Peter went with some representatives that Cornelius had sent to him. Soon enough, Peter entered the house of this Gentile, which, by the way, wasn't considered kosher at the time, and he ate with him, which was also against Jewish custom. In the end, though, God saved Cornelius as well as his family and friends, and he filled all of them with the Holy Spirit in Peter's presence. By using these visions, God confirmed that the gift of the Holy Spirit was for all people. Sometimes he provides a check on our spirit. In Acts 16.6, we read that the Holy Spirit forbade Paul from going into Asia. We aren't given the details of how this happened, but somehow Paul knew God didn't want him and his friends going there just then. One way the Holy Spirit retrains, restrains us is via a check in our spirit. And this could well be what Paul experienced. Basically, the more you try to head in a certain direction of your choosing, the more it feels like an invisible hand is pushing against you. That's the Holy Spirit stopping you from heading in a wrong direction. He may also work with your conscience. Similarly, sometimes you may experience a twinge of conscience about something the word doesn't specifically say is wrong. Somehow, though, it seems wrong to you. Even though you know you aren't violating any of God's commandments, this feeling may be identical to the check you experience when you head in a direction you know to be wrong. While some things are not wrong for everyone, they may still be wrong for you. Paul alluded to how the Spirit works with our conscience in Romans 9 and 1. My Spirit confirms it through the Holy Spirit. Sometimes the Holy Spirit will change the desire in our hearts so that we desire what God desires. Here's a popular verse I've heard people quote many times. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. A lot of people believe this verse means God will give us whatever we want. That is not what it is saying at all, however. What it is saying is that if we draw near to the Lord, he will make his wants for us our wants for ourselves. God will literally put his desires for us into our hearts so that our desires line up exactly with his. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit, the all of joy, more than anyone, because he hated evil and loved the good, exactly as his father did. In the same way, when we mature in our walk with Jesus, his desires become a faithful guide to us. Our desires become a faithful guide as they line up with his desires. That's why Paul said in Galatians 5 and 16 that if we walk in the Spirit, we will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. Some things to keep in mind. 
If we know what the will of God is on a matter, do it and do it as fast as we can. If you aren't sure, keep in mind that by two or three witnesses is a thing confirmed. Ask God to confirm for you what he wants you to do. He will. The door will stay open if it's God's will, even if you're genuinely unsure at the answer. Once you've come to know what God desires, do it. God gets the timing of a thing partly by when he reveals his will for you. That means that when he does reveal his will, he already has both you and the situation ready so that you can do what he has called you to do. I can recall when a, a man came and asked me to join him in what he was doing with a small technology company in Oklahoma. This would have required me to leave IBM. I'd been working at IBM for a number of years. And in just a few months, I'd come up on a significant anniversary, which would have set me up for a large retirement payment. In fact, it would have doubled the retirement payment. The man came to me in January. I prayed on it for five months before the final Holy Spirit spoke to me and told me to go with that man and to trust him. At that point, even though I was sacrificing retirement benefits, I stepped into the new role immediately after giving my two-week notice to IBM. Through the gracious hand of the Lord and the power of the Holy Spirit, that man who was the CEO of the company came to the Lord. The chairman of the board came as well. Others who were already believers told me their faith was strengthened as they watched me walk through events like the death of my father, which was televised on local TV. His house caught fire, and my dad was burned over more than 50% of his body. They put him in a medically induced coma to lessen the pain. Every day I would go by the burn center before and after work. I would read the word to dad and pray with him. It was a tough place to go because I personally have always hated to see other people in pain. In the burn center, when I would open the doors, I'd smell the scent of charred flesh. It was horrible. It was so bad, one of the nurses who had to bathe the, the patients came out in tears once. and I had to pray with her and comfort her. With my dad's condition, there came a day when I had to decide whether or not to amputate his legs and his hands. The thinking was this might be the only thing that would save his life in the short term. My dad was an immensely talented man with his hands, though. I remember him making a muscle when I was younger, and he had giant muscles from a lifetime of lifting water heaters, stoves, washing machines, and the like, all of which he would repair. He would say, I'm good with these, referring to his hands. He'd single-handedly built a house for his parents from the foundation up. So he wasn't kidding. I knew of nothing he couldn't fix with those hands, from electronics to automobiles to carpentry to plumbing. You name it, if it was done with the hands, Dad could do it. I was in a difficult place but praying deeply about this. The Lord stepped in, deciding to call my dad home right before the doctor needed my decision. This was a blessing because we knew he was going home. We knew he wouldn't have found it pleasant to deal with, with people with his face badly burned. He would have been depressed to be wheelchair-bound and missing his limbs. Rejoiced that God took him home where he would be completely whole and well. Dad had previously thought salvation came as a result of our good works. My sister made sure he understood he could only be saved by faith and that he personally accepted that Jesus had died for his sins and agreed to make Jesus the Lord of his life. With Dad's acceptance of this, we knew he was saved. The 30 or so employees of the small technology company where I worked were watching all of this from the fire that had taken first Dad's house, then his life to my reaction to everything that happened. The Lord kept me through all of this just as he has kept me through everything else. Several believers at the, at the company told me they were watching me walk through this and that it strengthened their faith. But the point is, as soon as I knew what the will of the Lord was on the matter, I moved. You should too. Non-obvious. The Holy Spirit has never told me something I already knew. The things he has shared have been things I was completely unaware of before he shared them with me. They defy human logic and thought. This is not surprising when you consider God told us through the prophet Isaiah, My thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, 
and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. The importance of the word. I cannot overemphasize how important it is to know the word. A word is your guardrail to be certain you are in God's will. If what you're hearing violates the word, then you know you've heard from a source other than the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit never violates the word, since he only speaks what he hears from the Father. Additionally, keep your eyes and ears open for confirmation. As I mentioned above, by two or three witnesses is a thing confirmed, the word tells us. The great thing about God is that he will not rush you. If you don't know what his will is, Satan, though, wants to rush you into making a mistake. But God opens doors that do not close until you know God's will on the matter. If a door closes, this is a sure sign it wasn't God's will for you. So stay in the word, stay in prayer, be quick to obey when you know the Spirit is leading you. Brief eight, how do we get filled with the Holy Spirit? We've spent a lot of time looking at how the Holy Spirit works in us and through us, but I'd like to come back to something we talked about in brief two, how every believer has the Holy Spirit, but we still need the filling of the Spirit to fully experience His power. So how does that happen? The first thing is we ask. First, we need to ask the Lord to fill us with the Holy Spirit. The great theologian A.W. Towser recommended this. More importantly, however, the Word also says it. Jesus himself said, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So if you want to be filled with the Spirit, start by asking the Father. We surrender. It is a spiritual principle, just as it is a natural principle, that things under high pressure move towards low pressure areas. What I'm saying here is that the more we humble ourselves, the more we surrender areas of our life, the more we will be filled by the Holy Spirit. We are told in the word, if we humble ourselves in due time, we will be exalted. We are also told that God chooses the weak, the foolish, and those with poor reputations to put to shame human thinking and human power. Ultimately, our walk is all about God. So he has given us the Holy Spirit in our little bodies to show his power working through us. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. We talked a lot about David. It's no surprise he was the first man we know of to have the Holy Spirit with him continuously. Why? Because he was a humble man. He never felt he was so expert, he didn't need to seek the leading of the Holy Spirit. In his own words, Lord, my heart is not haughty, nor mine eyes lofty. Neither do I ex exercise myself in great matters, are in things too high for me. He said in the 131st Psalm. We need to humble ourselves before God to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we desire God's perfect will in all things for our life. Earlier, I told you about the first time the Holy Spirit spoke to me personally with the story about hiring the man I've called Joe. Here's some additional background information you need to know. Before that incident happened, my wife and I had decided after eight years of marriage, we really wanted children. The question I asked myself was, what could I give a child that would be a lasting legacy for him or her? The answer to me was clear. It would be Christ. In order to do that, I remembered my own childhood and how children are like human video cameras recording every action their parents make. They don't care much what you say, except to cross-check it against your actions. This meant I would really have to walk closely with Christ myself. Now, I had made the decision to make Christ the Lord and Savior of my life at the age of 19, some 11 years prior to this. At that point of deciding to have children, no knowledge on my part about the Bible, with the exception of James, Proverbs, and Revelation, the Holy Spirit got a hold of me. He changed my prayers for myself to God, I just want your perfect will. I'd never heard a sermon talking about God's perfect will. I haven't even thought of reading Romans, where Paul has told us about the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. I prayed this way for nine months, 
And that's when I had the interview with Joe, and that changed everything I thought I knew about God, how he works, and about his love. David wrote in Psalms, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. I'm sure one of the reasons David continued to live in the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit was that he stayed thirsty for God. I believe it was the fact I desired to do God's perfect will and asked him to reveal that will that led God to fill me with the Holy Spirit. So be filled with it. You need to want to do God's perfect will. We depend on God and not ourselves. David also kept an attitude of dependence on God. He wrote, in your strength, I can crush an army. With my God, I can scale any wall in the 18th Psalm. Consider the apostles in the early church. In the fourth chapter of Acts, we see they were beaten and thrown in jail. They were instructed not to talk about Jesus, but they told the authorities they would rather obey God than man. Then they went back, gathered together with the rest of the apostles and prayed. They asked the Lord for more boldness. They asked him to heal. They asked him to send signs and wonders, and God answered by filling them with the Holy Spirit. They were depending on God to give them everything they needed to make his name and power known. God did not disappoint. He filled them with the Holy Spirit. I'm convinced when our living becomes all about God, that's when God will fill and refill us with his precious Holy Spirit. It's not something done once, but many times throughout your walk with Christ. We are told our bodies perish, but the inner man is renewed daily. That means we need to be filled at least daily from my perspective. And now here we are at the end of this book. I pray the Lord would bless you and keep you. May you ask for and receive the gift of the filling and refilling of the Holy Spirit. It's my hope that this book has shown you the importance and necessity of being filled with the Holy Spirit to have a successful walk with Christ. That's the way you know what Christ wants you to do and when he wants you to do it. It's the only way you can be sure you will one day hear, well done, you good and faithful servant. Hi, thank you for listening to this brief. We have plenty more at christianbrief.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N-B-R-I-E-F.com. May the Lord bless you and keep you and hope you check out some of the other briefs at christianbrief.com.